The stories we love are filled with characters that face crises and overcome. Frodo and Samwise faced the evil of Morador, triumphed over Sauron, and saved Middle-earth. Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy fought against the White Witch and her evil creatures, and they won the day. William Wallace secured freedom for the Scots against the oppression of a British king. When their friend Will Byers disappeared... Three of his friends banded together, summoned their courage, and overcame the monster in the woods. Rudy was too small to fulfill his dream, but his spirit prevailed and he got the opportunity to play football at Notre Dame. Marlin, the clownfish, traversed the great blue sea in order to find his son Nemo. And Elizabeth Bennett overcame pride and prejudice to win the heart of Mr. Darcy. I threw that one in there just so you know I have a sensitive side. Oswald Chambers, the Christian devotional writer, asserts that crises always reveal character. Crises always reveal character. When a person or a clownfish is tested, we see what's inside. We see what that person is like. And that's not just true in stories, is it? We see it in our lives. We see it in the great leaders of our day. If we look back over history, if we look back over our stories, we can see moments where we faced crises and it revealed character. Well, for the last couple of weeks, we've been in the book of Daniel. Early in his life, Daniel faced a crisis. He was born in Judea. He was gifted. He was talented. He had a bright future. But then disaster struck. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem, conquered the people. And he took many of the best and brightest of Israel and he forcibly removed them and brought them to serve in Babylon as exiles. Daniel and some of his friends, being bright young leaders, were selected for training, and they were made to serve a pagan king in a pagan land. Now, if you've been in the Old Testament, you understand the importance of land and place and temple. And so this was a disaster of huge proportions for them, to be removed from their land, to be removed from their temple, and to have to serve a pagan king. Well, in chapter 1, last week, we saw some ways that Daniel responded to this crisis. In an act of faith, he refused to defile himself by eating the food that was allotted to him from the king. Now, that could have gotten him in a lot of trouble, but God gave favor. Through pagan officials, he was allowed, he and his friends, to eat only water and vegetables. And through that, it was shown that God is the one who makes bodies healthy and strong, not King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he began to be honored. He began to be selected and also God gave them great interpretation skills and knowledge and wisdom and King Nebuchadnezzar noticed it. He said, these are some of the best counselors I have in all of the kingdom. And so it seemed maybe that crisis was averted. That maybe Daniel and his friends would would find a place in Babylon where they could serve and do some good and enjoy some 
favor. But then another disaster struck. A second crisis that threatened him and many others with imminent destruction. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along in the story in Daniel chapter 2. It's a strange twist, twist of fate when a leader has a bad dream and it may cost you your life. That's what happened to the king. He had a really bad dream, such a bad dream that it disturbed his sleep. And so he brought in the counselors, the enchanters, the wise men of the day. Dreams in their culture were not something to be dismissed out of hand. That's how the gods spoke. There was omens and things to be told through your dreams. And so we brought in the counselors. Common thing to do. Tell me the interpretation of my dream. Help me understand what the gods might be saying. But Nebuchadnezzar added something, didn't he? He wanted these wise men not only to give him the interpretation, he also wanted them to tell him the content of the dream. Now, we're not entirely sure why Nebuchadnezzar makes this demand. Some wonder if he had actually forgotten the dream. We often forget dreams, don't we? We might have a sense that we have an ominous dream. We wake up and we, we are, we're kind of scared about it. And then the moments go by and you say, what was your dream? Well, I can't remember now. So maybe he had forgotten. He was too embarrassed to admit, to admit it. That's not a good sign if this is an omen from the gods to forget it. Others suggest that he was worried that the magicians and the enchanters would somehow take the dream, manipulate it, maybe not give a true interpretation, and try to undermine his kingship. And so in order to prove their legitimacy of interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar says, well, you have to tell me the dream as well, and then I'll know. That's what he says in verse 9. Tell me the dream, and I shall know. You can show me the interpretation. One thing is clear. The word is firm. If they do not tell him the dream, Nebuchadnezzar will utterly destroy all the enchanters and magicians and wise men in the land. His word is firm. It is certain. There's no wiggling out of this one. And so we have a crisis on our hands. Because as his wise men rightly note, verses 10 and 11, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. The thing that the king asks is too difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so the king says, fine, you shall all be destroyed. Daniel and his friends, they weren't invited to that party, but they were included in the destruction order. And once again, Daniel finds himself in crisis. This time it's worse than the four. It's not just being taken out of his land. His very life is at stake. His friend's life is at stake. And all of these people, their life is at stake. You've read the book of Esther. It has a similar feel of this moment where a decree goes out that people are to be killed. But we know by now, don't we, friends, that crises are not accidents. In the hands of a sovereign God, crises serve a purpose. Crises reveal character. And so let's take a few moments. Let's look at Daniel and see how he responded and how his character was revealed. The first thing we see is that Daniel is a man of prayer. Many ways that he could have responded. He was exceptionally gifted. He was talented. He could have leaned into those gifts, said, I know I can do this. 
I'm smart enough to figure this out. Maybe if I think hard enough, I can just think up the dream. He could have used <coughs> his training and his education. He could have relied on his charisma and charm. Maybe by now he had developed a strong network. He had political allies, people that owed him favors. Old fraternity brothers from Babylon, you. <laughs> but that's not what he did. Instead, he prayed. And he didn't pray alone. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. When crisis came, Daniel prayed. The writer Brian Chappelle observes, when the bottom fell out, Daniel fell to his knees. And he didn't do it alone. He did it with the church, the people of God. He gathered together, and together as a people, they prayed. What do they pray for? Well, God's mercy to begin with. Pray that God would have mercy. They understood that God was sovereign, that he could do something. But they also prayed for an immediate solution to the crisis. In this case, they wanted to know the content of the dream so that they, along with everyone else, wouldn't be killed. Look at his prayer. It's not theologically sophisticated. It's just a simple cry for help. People pray for a lot of reasons, don't they? Sometimes we just pray out of religious custom. Well, we just do that. We go to church, we pray. That's the, the thing that we do. Other times, people pray for a sense of therapeutic relief. It doesn't matter who exactly the God is they're praying to. It's just a sense of release and therapy for self. It makes us feel a little bit better. Sometimes we pray as a way to actually gain control over a situation. But that's not what prayer is. None of those are. The heart of prayer, especially prayer in times of crisis, is simply this, acknowledging our need for God, acknowledging our total spiritual bankruptcy. We don't know what to do. We don't have the resources. We're lost if God does not intervene. Friends, I know this can seem a bit trite. It's such an obvious Christian truth that we kind of want a more sophisticated answer. We want this, this super training in prayer. We want to know sort of the formulas that if we prayed like this, then maybe that would do something. But this is it. This is the answer. When we're in times of crisis and need, we pray. We call out to God for help. I know this, and I'm shocked at how prayer is further down on my rapid response list. I lean into intellect, to problem solving, to talking to friends, to other things. None of those are bad, but sometimes I need to be reminded that prayer is the first thing I do, to fall on my knees, to actually acknowledge that I don't have what it takes to solve this, to be in control. That's what Daniel knew. In crisis, it was revealed that he was a man of prayer. But second, Daniel was a man of action. And not empty or rash action. Prayerful action. Prudent action. Faith-filled action. He knew to pray, but he didn't just pray, he acted. Look at verse 14. We see that when crisis came, he didn't freak out. 
The text tells us that he responded with prudence and discretion. Another translation says wisdom and tact. In the words of Rudyard Kipling, he kept his head when those all about him were losing theirs. And in their case, I think that was literal. In verse 16, he acts with great faith. Look at what he does. Before knowing the king's dream, before having the answer, he asks an audience with the king. He sets it all up. He responds. And he's trusted that God would work things out. He didn't know how yet. Answer hadn't been given to him yet. God had yet to reveal the mystery, but he steps out in reliance on the God of heaven that he will take care of it somehow. Don't know how, but I'm going to act in faith on what I believe to be is right in a moment of crisis. Sometimes God calls us to act, to step out, even when we don't have all the answers. He said to Abram, go to the land that I will show you. Wait, you want me to leave everything to a place you've not told me where to go yet? He said to Peter, get out of the boat, walk on the water. Yeah, but I know that human beings can't walk on water. So could you give me the physical formula for how that's going to, no, just get out of the boat and start walking. If you're a planner like me, heck, if you're a human being, this is hard to not know how things are going to unfold and to step out in faith. But that's how God calls us to act many times, especially in crisis, trust him to provide. So Daniel was a man of prayer. Daniel was a man of action. Third, Daniel is a man of truth. In response to his prayer, God reveals the mystery, both the content of the dream and its interpretation. What has been revealed is a word from God, and Daniel places his confidence in it. He knows that if God has revealed it, it is true. In verse 45, we see his confidence in God's revealed truth. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. It's a wonderful contrast in the narrative between Nebuchadnezzar earlier who says, the word from me is firm. And now Daniel, based on the word of God saying, no, 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 the word of God is firm. The word of God is certain and sure. Daniel's not basing his confidence on his interpretation skills. He's basing it on there's a God who's revealed this to me. Well, he doesn't just accept the truth. He doesn't just believe the truth for himself. Part of being a person of truth is to speak it out, to proclaim it even in inconvenient times, times where it could get you in trouble. It turns out that the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation wasn't exactly uplifting. It wasn't saying, you're great. It was saying, hey, Babylon's just one of many kingdoms that's going to fall. It's going to become like chaff. It's going to be blown away in the wind. And even though Daniel affirms the grandeur of Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you're great. He also says, it was God who gave this to you. You don't have any power and glory on your own. It comes from God, and eventually it'll be gone and God will replace it with something better. Speak those words to a king, that could get you killed. But Daniel does. He's true to the truth that's been revealed to him. He doesn't shrink back. He speaks the truth with boldness, not with rudeness, but with boldness, because God has revealed it, and Daniel is called to proclaim it. 
So in a crisis, Daniel's character was revealed as a man of prayer, a man of action, and a man of truth. And there's a lot we can learn from Daniel. He's a good model for us of how we are to respond with godly character in moments of crisis. And so I could conclude this morning by saying, be like Daniel in times of crisis. Be a person of prayer. Be a person of godly action and truth. Strive for godly character. But if I left it there, then we might conclude that the book of Daniel is about Daniel. And that the application of the book is us striving to become more Daniel-like, more godly. It's not a bad lesson per se, but it would be an incomplete one. Because friends, who is the book of Daniel ultimately about? Who's the hero of the book of Daniel? God. Yes, Daniel acted wisely. Yes, we should be people of prayer and action and truth. But here's what I want you to see. And if you miss this, you'll miss everything. Daniel can be who Daniel is because God is who God is. Daniel can be who Daniel is because God is who God is. Daniel, knowing God's character, allowed him to be a person of character. You see, for the people of God, a crisis doesn't just reveal our character. It reveals God's character. And God's character is a lot more foundational. It's a lot more important. It's where our godliness is based upon. And there's no better time to learn and to see God's character than in a crisis. Because in a crisis, not only do we learn who he is, we learn who he is for us. We know that he's near and that he's working with us and through us. And so I want to take a second look at Daniel chapter 2 and consider what is revealed about God's character. Once again, we can see three things. First, God answers prayers. God answers prayers. He's a God that cares. This is a very simple, yet I think it's one of the most beautiful parts of the story, that you have a God there who has mercy, who gives help, specific help, in a time of crisis. Do we believe that? That God is a God who answers prayers. I mean, I know we say we believe it, but do we really believe it? Do you, as you look at your prayer life, do you actually have evidence of believing that God answers prayers without 16 qualifications? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes prayer as simple as possible. He takes all the theological sophistication out of it. Fancy words, nice sounding sounding prayers, years of training, not necessary. Prayer is simply this. A child asking a father for what he or she needs. Father, please help. Father, please heal. Father, please forgive me, forgive them. Father, please give wisdom. Father, I'm scared. Please draw near to me. That's it. That's all. That's prayer, friends. And our Father, who already knows what we need, will reward us. Daniel's prayer is very specific. He says, God, we need to know the interpretation of the dream. A wise man said to me that general prayers get general answers. Specific prayers get specific answers. Daniel's prayer was specific. God, we need this. 
Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Again, I spend so many times qualifying that statement that I miss the powerful simplicity. Not only does God want to hear from us, but he wants to respond. He wants to answer prayers. No, he doesn't always give us what we ask for, thank God. And no, he doesn't always give us exactly in the time that we ask for it, thank God. But he is a God who answers prayers. And I think as we step into times of crisis, it is that part of his character that we need to know and to practice and to cling to. Well, second, we see God's character in that he is a God who reveals mysteries. It's a God that reveals mysteries. Again, there's a wonderful contrast in this story between the so-called wise men of Babylon and Daniel's God. The wise men were actually speaking the truth, at least in part, in their response to Nebuchadnezzar, verses 10 and 11. There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. First part of their statement's right. I mean, take away the polytheism, the belief in multiple gods, but they're right. Nobody can do that. Only person that can show it is the gods. But their next conclusion is false. Did you catch it? Whose dwelling is not with flesh. No, no, no. We don't have gods that draw near. We don't have gods that want to interact with humans in that way. We have gods that are up there somewhere. They're capricious. They're playing with the fates of men. But a god who who dwells with human beings? Never. But Daniel knows a different sort of God, does he not? Look at verses 27 and 28. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Two things we need to know about Daniel's God. First, he knows everything. He knows all the mysteries. He knows the future. He knows the course of human history, the big stuff. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows the hairs on your head and mine, or the lack of hairs on your head and mine. The first thing, he knows everything. The second thing about God is that he wants to be known. He's a self-disclosing God. While some things remain mysterious and unknowable, it's astounding how much God has revealed about his character, about his will, and about what will take place. We should never take this for granted. It's a very different sort of God than the gods, especially of the Babylonian empire. We know a God who knows everything and he reveals a lot. He reveals what we need to know. And his purpose in revelation, especially the revelation of himself, is that people might know him as father and enjoy his love forever. How many times in our lives have we faced a crisis, little, big? And the essence of the crisis for us was not knowing. It was not knowing how something was going to turn out. It was the unexpected health news that we're just reeling from and we don't know where it's going to go. 
It's the unexpected and sort of ominous conversation with the boss where he says, step into my office, and we don't know what that's going to mean for our job. It's when we don't know, we have a decision before us. Do we move? Do we stay put? It's some dark valley that we just can't quite see the light on the other side of. Or it's not always negative stuff. It can be positive stuff, stuff that we hope for, but we just don't know. Will I ever get married? Will I ever have children? Will I find a meaningful vocation? Will I find a church home? In the midst of uncertainty, whether threatening or hopeful, we can join Daniel in saying, but there is a God who reveals mysteries. We may not know what is going to happen, but God knows and he's capable of revealing to us what we need to know when we need to know it. And I think knowing that God knows That's an invitation to rest. That's an invitation to be still, to say he's a loving father. He's writing good stories for his people. Stories where even the bad things in his providence turn out for good. We can rest in the not knowing because he knows. And in the meantime, he actually has revealed what we need to know. He's revealed the most important thing. In Jesus Christ, God did exactly what the wise men said that God didn't do. He made his dwelling among the flesh. It was the greatest act of self-disclosure of God. He became a man in Jesus. Why? Because he wanted to be known. Because he wanted to be loved and he wanted to love. And he wanted to draw all of us in to the beautiful affection that exists within the Trinity the greatest mystery of all, not held a mystery, but now disclosed for us to know the very character and nature of God and to say, don't just know it, come into it. Enjoy it now, enjoy it forever. So in a crisis, we don't know the future, but we know the God who knows the future. And he has already invited us in to his very self. He's a God who answers prayers. He's a God who reveals mysteries. But third and finally, God shows his character by his promise to establish his kingdom. Now thus far in Daniel, we've seen how God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the world. That's comforting news, especially when we find ourselves with bad leaders, bad government. And we've seen that God is sovereign because he sets up kings, and he removes kings. He sets up bad kings. He removes bad kings. He is sovereign over all of it. Nebuchadnezzar was brought to power by God. He was used for a purpose, and he will be removed by God and judged accordingly. But in the end, here's what we see in chapter 2. God's purpose is not just to be sovereign over kingdoms, but is to replace all the kingdoms of the world with his own. After describing Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which was a statue, it's made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay, Daniel described how the whole statue will crumble. All of those represented different kingdoms, and scholars disagree at exactly what kingdoms they are, but all of it will crumble. It will, it will fade. It will become like dust. It doesn't matter if you were gold or if you were the clay or if you were the iron, you're going to become like dust, and the wind will blow you away. And then verse 44 and following, Daniel tells us the glorious reason. I'm going to follow along. 
And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. In the midst of a crisis, God reveals, not just to Daniel, but to the world through his proclamation that God will be king again. He's going to reduce and replace all the kingdoms of the world, and he will come in person to rule and to reign. This kingdom will be eternal, It will not be destroyed. It will not change hands because God is the king. Now the pagan rulers of the day, they must have been a little shaken by this. They should have been, if not. It's disturbing news to know that if you're in power, it's not gonna last and you're gonna be brought down and ultimately you'll you'll be replaced. But to the exiles, to Daniel and to his friends, it must have been a wonderful word of encouragement. God will return. God will reign. God will establish his kingdom. Some years later, Jesus Christ grows up. He starts his public ministry. He begins to teach. And what is the main thing he taught about? The kingdom of God. Over and over, kingdom this, kingdom that. God's kingdom is coming. Understand the kingdom. We have to understand kingdom by understanding Daniel 2. Just in the same way, later, we have to understand Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, by understanding Daniel 7. Jesus understood himself to be God's chosen king, the Messiah in and through whom God would rule and reign and establish his once and for all kingdom. And the message throughout the Gospels is simply this. All peoples, all nations, will either submit to God's King Jesus and find life and salvation and forgiveness, or they will not submit and they will experience very harsh judgment. That is the message. It is true for Drew. It is true true for Gentile. So are you facing a crisis right now? Maybe it's a quarter-life crisis, midlife crisis, three-quarters life crisis, three-eighths life crisis, career crisis, marriage crisis, parenting crisis, health crisis. Many feel right now that we're in the midst of a cultural crisis, a political crisis. Whatever form they take, friends, these crises are not accidents. They've been given by God sovereignly to reveal character. Yes, our character. Yes, to see what we're made of but also, and more importantly, to reveal God's character. To reveal him as the caring God who answers prayers, even the desperate prayers of his people. To reveal him as a God who delights to reveal all the mysteries that we need to know, including the greatest mystery of his own personhood. And they reveal that God is totally in control. He's over all these kingdoms, and one day they will be replaced by his own kingdom and king. None of us go looking for a crisis. We'd rather avoid them. But when they come, they offer us a gift. They help us see the places where we're strong 
and where we need to grow. And ultimately, they show us that God is a good, trustworthy, and faithful God. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for what you show us through a very old story. Thank you that in looking at Daniel, we see some things that we can certainly benefit from copying. More than that, Lord, we see what Daniel knew was the character of God that he served. And I pray for each and every person in here this morning that this very week, they would encounter in a little or big decision or crisis or moment something that reminds them again how beautiful you are, how faithful you are, your character on display in our lives and through us on display for the world. May it be so, Lord, by your spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen.